Today's scripture is from Genesis 22:1-19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moreh and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father... And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to the young, his young men, and they arose and went together to Bathsheba, and Abraham lived at Bersheba. As you're being seated, let me pray for us. <clears throat> oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would instruct us by your word today, that you would teach us by it, that we might be transformed by it, that we might be receptive to it, that we might be those who live uh, by it. And I do pray that um, the children downstairs, as they hear your word, they would also be receptive, Lord, and it would transform their lives. And that we as a community would be uh, shaped entirely by your word. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, 
Well, good morning. Uh, my name is John, uh, one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. Um, if you've been around at Christ City the last few weeks, you'll know that we've just ended in our series in Jonah, uh, which I'm sure has been nice and challenging for us. And um, we have three weeks now until Advent, which I'm very much looking forward to. I'm ready to put the lights up. I don't know about you. Um, but Advent is coming. And uh, in between that time, up until we get to Advent, we are, we've got a few weeks where we're just going to be looking at a few different topics from uh, different preachers. And today, I felt led to the story that you just heard read, the story of Abraham and Isaac. And um, I don't want to overstate it, uh, but the story, this story, which lays at the foundation of the three uh, major monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, uh, often referred to as the Abrahamic religions, right? Uh, this story not only lays at the foundation of these religions, but uh, as such, it is a story that lays at the foundation of Western civilization. It's a very important, formative story for our culture. And uh, this story is not just what we might call foundational uh, to our culture, um, but it's also confusing. No? It's confusing. Even, you might say, disturbing. Nowhere in the Bible, it seems, apart from perhaps the book of Job, do we have such a challenging story. No story in the Bible provokes such visceral reaction and maybe confusion as we read it. The famous atheist Richard Dawkins in his book The God Delusion says this of the story, a modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such a psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. Yet the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. Dawkins is not alone in his struggle. Art and literature throughout history have tried to understand and, and to try and capture the troubling nature of what is happening in this scene. Um, Caravaggio, who is a 16th century painter, tried to do so in his painting, The Sacrifice of Isaac, which you can see on the screen. He's trying to capture the tension and the brutality of the climactic moment in the scene where the angel holds back the blade that is moving towards Isaac's neck. And so here's the question. What does this story have to say to us 4,000 years after it happened? Does, as Dawkins suggests, modern morality condemn Abraham and indeed God's actions? Or is there something more to this story, this foundational story, that might even challenge our modern sensibilities? And so that's what I want to look at today. And I've just got two points today as we navigate through the text, and I'm going to give them to us as we go. And so the first point is this. Number one. 
God demands everything from us. God demands everything from us. In our text today, we read, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, these opening verses are shocking. These opening verses should shock us. In fact, if they don't shock us, I don't think we're hearing them right. I don't, I don't think we're reading them right. As God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And there are layers, aren't there, to, to why this is going to shock us. The first layer is obvious. It's, it's going to shock us because it seems to go against everything we know about the character of God. Right? It goes against everything we know and will come to know about who God is and who he reveals himself to be to us. And not just generally, but, but actually specifically with regards to child sacrifice. Child sacrifice in the Bible is condemned multiple times explicitly by God as an abomination. And he has to do that because the surrounding nations, they do this. It's prevalent in ancient religions, but Yahweh, God, tells his people to not be like those other nations specifically in this regard. And so we ask, is God going against his own revealed character, not only in condoning, but in asking for child sacrifice? It's shocking. But, but more than that, it shocks us because of who Isaac is. You see, Isaac is not any child. He's Abraham's beloved son. Ten times in the story, as we read through, the word son is used intentionally, repeated intentionally, so that as we read, we cannot miss the gravity of this request. Now, for most of you, you know I have three sons. Judging by the amount of children that went out, you all have three sons. <laughs> I have three sons, and so for me, as I've tried this week to honestly wrestle with this story, I've had my own moments where I have been tempted to side with Dawkins. Tempting, tempted to question who this God is who would ask such a thing. If God was to ask me to give up one of my sons. Now, now I rest in the solace that that's not what God would ask for me. I rest in the hope that 
God's character would never ask that of me, but apparently he's asking that of Abraham. And so it's shocking, not just because it seems to go against God's character, but this is no ordinary child. This is Isaac, Abraham's beloved son. But more than that, if you know anything about the story, Isaac is more than a son. He is a gracious, miraculous gift from God to Abraham. You see, what we're told earlier in Genesis is that God had promised Isaac. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child. And after years and years, literally years and years of barrenness and waiting, when it seemed like an impossibility, and in fact, naturally speaking, it was an impossibility, God miraculously and graciously gave them Isaac. And so Isaac was their son, yes, but he was also a long-awaited, promised son who had been graciously given to them. But more than that. You see, this story shocks us as we read it because Isaac is not just a promised son. He is the son of all the promises. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you go back a few chapters in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, he promises to Abraham that I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to everyone. In you, he says, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And then later in Genesis 15, he says, Abraham, look up to the skies. Look up to the heavens. Count the amount of stars in the skies. That's how many your offspring will be. That's how big your family is going to be. And then in, later in Genesis 17, he says, You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And even kings shall come from you. And he says the same thing to Sarah. He says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you a son and nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from you. Christ City, he is more. Isaac is more than a promised son. He is the son of all the promises. He is the son in whom are all the promises of God. Fruitfulness and blessing and salvation, not just for Abraham, but for, think about it, the entire world. Every generation since, everyone. And so this story is shocking because it makes us wonder, not only is God seemingly going against his character, but he seems to be going against his word. He seems to be pulling back on his promise to bless the world. And so the question we ask at this point is, what are we to make of a story like this that shocks us on so many levels? That's hard for us to understand. The first thing to say is this. Is that in these opening verses that we're given, we're actually given an insight into what is going on that Abraham himself doesn't have. Look again. It says in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham responds, Here I am. You see, Abraham doesn't know this yet. He's not privy to this information yet. But what we're told is that this is a test. 
this is a test. And, and this idea of testing, it, it's not unique to this story in the Bible. In fact, it's, it's pervasive in the Bible. God, it seems, often tests his people. Just in the next book over in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, another key moment in Israel's history when, when God has, has given the law to Moses after sharing the Ten Commandments with the people, Moses says this, he says, Do not fear, for God has come to test you. He's come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And then just a couple of books over in Deuteronomy where, where Moses gathers the people and restates the law. He says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Christ City, God tests his people. God tests his people. And we might ask why. Well, it says here, we're given some insight here. It's to reveal our hearts. It's to humble us. It's to see what we are made of, to see whether or not we will keep his commandments or not, to see if our faith in him is substantive or superficial. God tests us. Now, at this point, there's a really, really, really important distinction that we need to make, and it's this. There is a difference in the Bible between what we might call divine testing and satanic or demonic tempting. There is a difference between testing that comes from God and temptation that comes from the enemy. And it's important that we know this, not just so that we can understand what is going on in the life of Abraham, but also so that we can navigate our own lives as we navigate the trials of life. You see, a test from God is God seeking our obedience as he draws us towards the good, which is himself. But temptation from the enemy is him seeking our disobedience to God, drawing us away from the good away from God, towards evil, and ultimately to our destruction. That's the difference here. And so a test from God is where he asks us to trust his word, and temptation is where the enemy comes in and makes us doubt his word. A good example of that is in the Garden of Eden. If you know the story earlier in Genesis, think about it. The tree is a test. The tree is a test. The serpent is a tempter. The tree is a test. The serpent is a tempter. And so the test is where God gives us an opportunity to demonstrate our trust in him. And what often happens is the enemy will come in and use that opportunity to cause us to distrust God, to draw us away. I think James clarifies it best in his book, in the opening chapter of his book, where he says this. He says, Blessed is the man who, receives, uh, who re remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. For each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see that? Testing is where God says, my will, not yours. God says, my will and not yours. Why? Because I know what is good for you. But tempting is when the enemy says, your will, not his. Your will, not his. He doesn't know what's good for you. He doesn't have what's best for you. What the enemy does is he entices us by our own sinful desires, by our own flesh that leads to more sin and ultimately to our destruction. And so let me be clear here, God never tempts us. But let me be just as clear, God does test us. God does test us. You see, God tests us not only to see how strong our faith is, but he uses it as a means to strengthen our faith. That's what it does as we are tested. The illustration that the biblical authors use often is that of a purified metal. Do you know, you know the image of gold or of silver as it, is, as it is put into the fire? It is um, tested, which not only reveals what it is made of, but it purifies and refines and strengthens what it is made of. Christ City, that's what God does as he tests us. Even when it is hard to see, he is always doing it for our good, drawing us to good drawing us to himself because that is the good. And it not only reveals our faith in the test, but it also builds our faith as we go through the test so that our faith would be strengthened, our trust in him would be greater, and also he would prove himself as he does to be faithful. That's what the test does. And so as we go back to this story, the first thing that we need to notice about this story is that this is a test from God, as hard as it is to believe. And while this isn't the first test, what we're supposed to see is that this is the final test. This might be described as the ultimate test of faith. In fact, the author of the story is going to intentionally allude back to the first test that God gave to Abraham to show that this is the last one. I don't know if you know the story, but we first hear about Abraham, who's called Abraham at the time, back in Genesis 12, when God asked him to leave his country and his people to go to a place where God would lead him to. And he obeys. And bear with me for a second, but if you look at a parallel with God's first call and now this last call in the story that we're looking at today, we're going to see a few things. Look on the screen. See, Genesis 12 says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, that's Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And now he says again, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the mountains of which I shall tell you. Two things I want us to notice here. First is the author is intentionally building a sense of sacrifice and loss in both cases. 
Think about it. He says, leave your land, but not just your land. Leave your kindred. And not just your kindred, but your father's house. And again, in our text, he says, take your son, but not just your son. Your only son, Isaac. Not just your only son, but the one that you love. What we're supposed to see here and indeed feel here is the increased sense of loss of what is being laid down. Of what is being given up. The second thing I want us to notice is if the first test was calling Abraham to lay down his past, which it was, to give up his, his land, his, his home, his country, his family. If the first call was to lay down his past, this last call is to lay down his future. Because remember, Isaac is more than a son. He's a son of all the promises. He's the son in whom are all of the promises. See, this last call isn't a call to lay down something. It's a call to lay down everything. To give it all up. To put it all on the altar. To say that everything, my past, my present, my future, my family, my people, my country, my son, your promises not before you, God. That even the promises of God do not come before you. That even the gifts that you have given me don't come before you. In Christ City, this is what God demands of us. It's a hard word. But this is what God demands. God demands everything. Everything. Fleming Rutledge, who's a theologian, talking about the story of Abraham, says this. He says, she says, to, to have faith in God, to fear God as Abraham did, means to trust totally and to put oneself and all one's life into God's hands totally. Even when the fulfillment of the promises seems to have receded into impossibility. Christ City, this story is the ultimate story of faith because it is the ultimate test of faith. Where the question is asked, not do you trust me with some things, but do you trust me with everything? And so we read on. And I'm going to read this section of text now And for those of you who feel comfortable, I want you to enter into the text with me. I want you to think about what is happening here. I want you to think about what Abraham is doing as he responds. And I want you to feel the weightiness of his actions. Verse 3 says this, In response to the call of God, Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together and Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Fleming Rutledge, again, in her reflections on these verses, says that this section is beyond commentary. It's beyond commentary. The weightiness of it is too much. It's too heavy. The one thing to say is that in this dark and terrifying, almost unimaginable scene is that there are still glimpses of hope. And you know, with God, there are always glimpses of hope. We see it a few times. We see it in the way that he speaks to his servants. He says that they're going to go. Isaac and himself are going to go by themselves, but they will return. It's a glimpse of hope. He says in response to Isaac's question that God would provide is a glimpse of hope. But Abraham, as ever, hoping against hope, he goes on in obedience. And it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. In verse 10, we reach the climax of the story. And it's difficult to overstate this, but at this moment, which I'm sure was a fraction of a second, but felt like an eternity, when the knife hangs in the air, history hung in the balance. History hung in the balance. Fruitfulness, blessing, salvation, not just for Abraham, but for the entire world, for us, was all in this son. And so the question is asked, would the son of promise, in whom are all the hopes of the world, be destroyed? Would God go back on his word? Would God go back on his character? Would Abraham kill the son of the promise? God had demanded everything from him, and Abraham was ready to give everything to him, including his beloved son. So the first thing that this story shows us today is that God demands everything from us. But the second thing we're going to see, praise God, is that God gives everything for us. God gives everything for us. See, the question that we should ask when we are confronted with a story like this is how? How? How is it possible that Abraham could display, this father, this man could display such total and complete obedience? Complete trust in God. 
How is it possible, given the magnitude of the task, for Abraham to say yes, when everything in him, I'm sure, said no? Please, no. No, I think the answer is, is a complex one, but I think it can be stated simply, and it's this. Abraham knew God. Abraham knew God. You see, he knew God, not just in his power, but also in his goodness, and therefore trusted, even though it seemed to not be this way, he trusted in his power and his goodness. You see, when we know God, when we truly know God in his absolute power and in his absolute and unmoving goodness, we know two further things about God. First, we know that God has graciously given us everything that we have. Christ City, everything that you have has been graciously given to you by God. As I said earlier, Isaac was a gracious gift. Abraham knew that everything that he had, including and almost especially his son Isaac, was a gift, a gracious gift from God. And therefore, if it was God's to give, it was God's to take. We're reminded of Job's famous line in the opening chapter of the book of Job, where in humble recognition he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. And yet, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. See, Abraham, like Job, knew God. He knew God in his power and goodness, had given him everything that he had. But second, he knew, even when it was difficult, to put it mildly, when it was difficult to understand, he knew that God was always going to be powerful and good. That God will always be powerful and good. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, the author gives us an insight into the question of how. How is it possible for Abraham to trust God even in this circumstance? It says this in verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And yet, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Do you see that? Even when he couldn't see it. Even when it was hard to see what God was doing, even when it was hard to trust what God was doing, Abraham knew that the God who had power over life also had power over death. He knew that, that the God who had graciously given life to his son Isaac in the first place could, could, and maybe would, and maybe would, because he's good, raise him from the dead. Give him life again. 
And so despite the anguish and the confusion, he raises his knife in absolute obedience and trust in the power and the goodness of God. And then we read, but... But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Imagine the relief. Here I am. I'm here again. Here I am again, Lord. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I think it would be fair to say that these verses for Abraham and for those of us who read it for the first time come as a welcome relief. God would not go against his word. God would not go against his character. In fact, rather than going back on his promises, God is going to use this moment to help all future generations, including us, Christ City, to understand the weight of his promises. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, if we are to understand this story, we need to see every part, and we need to see what every part points towards. Look again at the Caravaggio painting. We see Abraham, one hand on the knife and the other on his son. But we also have the angel of the Lord with one hand holding back the knife and the other, I don't know if you noticed this the first time, but subtly pointing to a ram. Subtly pointing to a ram in the corner right by Isaac's head. Christ City, when we see all of the parts of this story together in this moment, we can start to see more clearly what is going on. You see, this story is not just a story of our obedience. It's actually a story of God's provision. It's not just a story about Abraham's commitment to God, although it is, but it's a story about God's commitment to Abraham and to us. That's why Abraham, do you notice this? He didn't call the place, Abraham will obey. What did he call it? The Lord will provide. You know what's interesting about this place, Mount Moriah? This place would later be called, what? The city of Jerusalem. Where 2,000 years later, guess what God would do? He would provide again. Where the story of Abraham and Isaac would be reenacted, but now in the person of Jesus, in the person of the Son who is more than a son. The Son in whom are all the promises of God. And this Son would also carry wood upon his shoulders up a hill. And that wood would become an altar upon which he would be sacrificed. But for this Son, there would be no substitute. Why? Because he himself is the substitute. 
Because Jesus is in himself both the beloved Son. And as John the Baptist would proclaim, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Christ City, the story of Abraham and Isaac is hard to understand. It's hard. But we won't get close to understanding it if we don't recognize that the sparing of Isaac points us towards the sacrifice of Jesus. Who in total obedience, in total trust, would give himself, not to the point of death, but unto death, to make a way for the promises of God that were in Isaac, that are now in Christ, to be ours. That he would give up his life to deal with our sins so that we might be raised with him and receive new life. That all the promises and blessings of God might be ours. In Romans 8, Paul says this, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also in him graciously give us all things? Christ City at the center of the Christian faith is a God who doesn't simply demand everything from us, who, but he's a God who gave everything for us. The Christian faith is not first and foremost about our commitment to God, although we are committed to God. But it's first and foremost about his commitment to us. That's why we follow Abraham, the father of faith. We follow him in obedience to God, in tough circumstances, in trials and in tests. Yes, but we don't come together and sing about our obedience. We come together and we sing, the Lord has provided we sing about his provision. This place is not called, we will obey. It's called, he has provided. In fact, God is worthy of our allegiance, worthy of our trust, worthy of our obedience, because God has so graciously and generously provided for us. We know God in his power and his goodness because he gave us his son and displayed totally and finally his power and his goodness by giving his life for us. He's worthy of our obedience, Christ City. Let me end with this. For some of us, if we're honest, we have a half-hearted devotion to God. For some of us, if we're honest, we have a half-hearted devotion to God. We, we obey God up until a point. And that point often reveals to us what we really worship. When we follow Jesus until it gets uncomfortable, we know that we really worship our comfort. When we follow Jesus until he says, give that up or this up, we know that this or that is our God. When we follow Jesus until we don't like it, we can legitimately ask ourselves the question, do we actually follow him at all? Now, some of us might be going through a moment of testing. You need to remember that distinction between testing and tempting. Know the Lord's voice and not the enemy's. 
Some of us are going through a moment of testing where there's a call maybe to lay something down, to give something up. And we're asking ourselves whether or not we're going to obey or not. Here's what I know. That like Abraham, you won't be able to obey until you truly know God. You won't be able to obey until you truly know God. And my prayer for you today, Christ City, is that you would know God. That you would know His power, yes, but also His goodness. That you would know He has graciously given you all things, and in Christ He will graciously give you more. You would know a God who not only demands everything from us, but who is worthy of everything from us because he has given everything to us in Christ. We will not obey, you will not obey until you know that God. Would you stand as we respond? <laughs>